0: Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. It is a joy to be back amongst you again, and um, I thought that it would be profitable for us to return to the text that I preached on a few weeks ago um, about the coming of our Lord. We looked at it some last time. Luke 1 26 and following, and um, to just see more of what the Lord has for us here about his son Jesus. So, you know, I, I read someplace that a, uh, there was a preacher who, every single time as he walked up the steps to get into the pulpit, he would be saying to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's why we're here, isn't it? Um, because we believe that God the Holy Spirit dwells with His people. And that even as we do these things, we sing these songs, we, we have scripture readings, we have the preaching of the word, there's something happening here that is not merely human, right? I mean, that's why we come. It's because we believe that God Himself is here. And he's going to do something that no mere man could possibly do. So let's, let's, I'm going to read this text and then we'll pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to work amongst us as only he can do. So Luke 1 and verse 26. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this beautiful account of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And Lord, now as as we begin to meditate upon it together, really what, what we desire is what we sang just a few minutes ago that you would draw us near to you. Lord, we need you. We need you desperately. We need you so that we might live unto you, so that we might live for you, and so that we might live by your grace and by your strength. Father, we need you not just so that what we do here and now um, in, in our public act of worship would be pleasing to you, but Lord, we're going to need you tomorrow when we go to work and to school and when we're interacting with our spouses or our friends, and Lord, We will need you every single day. So please give us grace now through your word. Please, Father, send your Holy Spirit through your Son to work in a powerful way in our lives so that your children will be equipped to serve you well. Lord, to to be like Mary as she is presented to us in this passage. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone amongst us who is not yet one of your children, Oh, God, please take that person, grasp hold of him or her with your love, and deliver him from the domain of darkness and bring him into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we did look at this passage last time, one of the things that the Lord really highlighted for us is the fact that that Jesus is the Son of the Most High. And we talked a little bit about how this person who who was born and, and laid in a manger, this person who came to us in such a lowly state, is the Supreme Being. He is God the Son. And, and he is a person before whom even the angels and the demons bow down. And one of the remarkable things about Jesus Christ is that he brings together in his person and in his life and in the way he relates to us, a marvelous combination of being so majestic, so high and lofty and great and glorious, and yet... So near, so near. The the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And what we see here is, is the one who is the son of the most high coming down and meeting with us at the, what we might say, the most low, the lowest of places, coming and joining himself to us. And as as we look this evening at, at what this passage says to us, and particularly about how Jesus was born of a virgin, what the Lord says to us in this text is that the virgin birth of Jesus is a sign that he is God dwelling with us. And so here we have God, the Most High, the Great King above all, and yet He has come to dwell with us, to take up permanent residence with us, even as one of us. It's a great mystery, and yet it is at the very heart of our faith. And so, let's look at this passage now. I'm I'm not going to spend very much time on the parts that I already opened up, or I'm really not going to do any review to speak of. But first of all, I just want to look at this first part, verse 27 and verse 31, to point out that this is saying to us that Emmanuel is born of a virgin. Emmanuel is born of a virgin. You notice that Luke tells us twice in verse 27 that the person that the angel Gabriel came to was a virgin. It says, To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. In other words, this is a young woman who had not had any kind of physical intimacy with a man. She was a maiden. She was not yet Well, she was betrothed, she was promised to Joseph, but they had not yet come together in a physical way. Now, why does he draw so much attention to that? Well, notice with me in verse 31 what the angel says to her. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And you say, well, what's so remarkable about that? I mean, after all, she's engaged to be married, she's betrothed, it's not going to be a big shock that after they get married, she's going to have a baby, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's an echo here. Do you realize that sometimes God echoes something that He previously said in the Bible to tip us off that something very special is happening? And there's an echo here of what God said way back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 7.14, in Isaiah 7.14, God gave a promise. So let me read that verse, and then I'm gonna read the verse 31 in Luke 1 again. I want you to listen for the echo. So Isaiah 7.14, it says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now listen again to Luke 1.31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Do you hear the echo? It's, it's almost exactly the same thing. In, in fact, if, if you look at, um, they took, well, about 200 years before Jesus came, they took the Hebrew Old Testament and translated it into Greek. And if you take that, that Greek translation of Isaiah seven fourteen, and you compare it to the Greek original of Luke 1, it's almost exactly the same, except that instead of saying a virgin, it says you. And of course, Luke has already told us twice that this young lady is a virgin. And instead of Emmanuel, it says Jesus. Now what's, what's going on here? What's, what's being told us here? Well, Clearly, what he's saying is, Jesus, your son that you're going to have, Mary, is the promised Emmanuel. He is the one that Isaiah 7.14 is all about. God has kept his promise, and he is going to send this special person named Emmanuel. But what does that mean? Well, Emmanuel is, is actually a in a Hebrew phrase, that means, well, you know what it means, right? God with us. God with us. But what we need to understand is in Isaiah 7.14, God is not just saying, this is going to be a sign that I'm with you. There's this baby who's going to be born. That's not the point. The point is, the baby himself will be God with with us. And you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. He's a baby. But we know that this is the case because later on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9 and verse 6, Isaiah gives this further prophecy. And he says, for to us, a child is born. See, here's the baby again. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. So he's going to be a king. But listen to this. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So there it is. This baby, this child, this human being who is going to be born is going to be the mighty God. He's going to be God in the flesh. That's why we call Christ God incarnate. Because the word incarnate means in the flesh. What we're saying is that, that in Jesus Christ, God, the, the infinite, all powerful God, has become a human being with <laughs> real flesh and blood that people could touch with a real human spirit who felt and thought the same kinds of things that we think and feel because he was like us in every way except without sin. This is the great doctrine of the incarnation, that we have in Christ, in one person, two different natures that have come together, that he is true God joined with a true man, a true human being. And this is what the virgin birth is about. The virgin birth is a sign that God is now dwelling with us. Now you're thinking, okay, well, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you're very familiar with it. Maybe you've never heard that before in your life, and you're thinking, wow, that's kind of crazy that God would become a man. But I, I see that's, that's what this is saying in the Bible. But what does, that, what does that mean? What implication does that have for our life? How is that even possible? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because Mary asked that question. Mary asked that question. That's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. Not only does this text say that Emmanuel is born of a virgin, but it tells us that faith seeks understanding of the Word. Faith seeks understanding of the Word. Look at Mary's question in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, first of all, we need to to think a little bit about why is she asking this question? Because the angel didn't tell her that she would have this baby apart from Joseph. Did you notice that? He just said, you're going to have a child and you're going to call his name Jesus. And it would have been totally reasonable for her to think in her her mind, okay, I'm betrothed to Joseph, we're going to get married soon, so I'm going to have a child with Joseph, we'll call his name Jesus. Jesus. So why would she bring this thing up about the fact that she's a virgin? Of course, she's a virgin. She's not gotten married yet. Well, the only reasonable explanation is that she heard the echo. She heard the echo. She understood when the angel said to her Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. She understood that he was saying to her, this is the Emmanuel prophecy coming true. And you're thinking, well, but wait a minute. Didn't you tell us a few weeks ago that Mary is just a really young girl in her early teens? You expect us to believe that that she had that much of a knowledge of the Bible, that she would just make that connection? Well, yes, because if we were to go on in this passage and study what's called Mary's Magnificat, it's the song that she sings beginning in verse 46. This this beautiful song that Mary composes to the Lord is packed full of Old Testament references. This young lady knew the Bible extremely well. By the way, those of you who are young people, you can learn your Bible extremely well. God can fill you even at a young age with a remarkable knowledge of who he is because Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old. So, Mary made the connection. She heard the echo and she is therefore saying, okay, I understand you are saying to me, Gabriel, that this is the Emmanuel promise, and I'm not going to have this child with Joseph. I'm going to have this child on my own. And she says, how will this be? Now, don't misunderstand her. She's not being skeptical. She's not being cynical. Um. We know that because later on in verse 45, Elizabeth says to her, "'Blessed is she who believed.'" Mary believed. She believed the promise. She believed that she was going to bear the Christ child as a virgin. And yet, she asks a question because she wants to understand better. And I think there's a tremendous example for us in this. I think Mary is a model to us because what she's showing to us here is that faith seeks understanding. This is not the kind of skeptical questioning that, that somebody might come up and say, well, you know, I, I, maybe I'll believe that if you can explain it to me so I can completely understand it and it makes sense to me. I mean, that seems to be the kind of approach that Zechariah took earlier in this chapter when he also asked Gabriel a question and he was disciplined by God. He couldn't talk for a while because he was asking the question because he didn't believe. But Mary is asking the question because she believes and she wants to know more. And isn't that what faith does? When, when God's word comes to you and you do believe it, you understand something there and you believe it, that creates an appetite inside of you, doesn't it? You you want to know more. You start to hunger for a deeper understanding of the Word of God. You want to grow in your knowledge, because what has happened is you have gotten a little glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ, and you want to see more. You want to understand better. And so, as Augustine said, we believe in order that we may know. And I would just like to encourage you to cultivate the appetite of faith, to stir up within yourself that, that hunger to know more, not out of a skeptical mindset, but because you do believe. This is the attitude that David had in Psalm 25. In Psalm 25, in verses 4 and 5, David prayed this, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. At That waiting, that's, that's the waiting of expectancy. It's, it's the waiting of desire. Lord, I'm looking for you. I want to know you more. I want to grow in this relationship I have with you. Teach me. Teach me more. And this is one of the reasons that we come to church, isn't it? This is one of the reasons why God, God motivates us or how God motivates us to come and seek him in church because we want to know him more. We are not satisfied with how much we understand. And and whether whether we're a kid in school or whether we got gray hairs on our head, um, we are always hungry and thirsting for more. And it's not because, well, you know, I like this preacher, I like that preacher. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. He's the bread of life, and we hunger for him And because we believe, faith seeks understanding. Just like Mary, and understanding means we ask questions. We want to understand better. And you know what? I'm so thankful that Mary asked this question. Because since she asked the question, the angel told her more. And we have more that we can learn about Christ now and and who he is. And that brings us to the third thing in the text, and this is that God's Son became the new man, renewed by God's Spirit to be his holy temple. God's Son became the new man, renewed by God's Spirit to become or to be God's temple. You think, oh, that's that's an awful lot there. Well, let's look at the verse. Look at the verse. It says there in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Let's break that down. First of all, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. In other words, Mary, this is not just going to be some freak of biology. This is going to be a miracle that God is going to work inside your body. And it's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit coming upon you. The Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and he is the person in the Godhood who particularly comes to renew God's creation. Listen to what Isaiah said about the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 32 and verse 15. Isaiah 32, 15 talks about how the land is going to be desolate and forsaken, and then it says, until... The Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. So, when it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you, what it's saying is that, that God the Holy Spirit is coming to his creation, and his creation has become like a barren wasteland. And, my friends, that's the situation that the human race is in. Because of our sin, we who were made to be like a fruitful garden producing all kinds of good fruit, we have become like a wilderness. The human race is barren and empty of the good fruit of love and righteousness and justice that God calls for. And the Holy Spirit is sent down to bring new life to the desert. It's kind of like a, a desert that hasn't seen rain for 10 years. And then all of a sudden the weather patterns change, and all this cloud comes and the rain starts to fall. And out of this sand that looks like it's it's got nothing alive in it, all these plants start growing up and, and their flowers blooming. All this stuff springs forth in the desert because the rain has fallen. The Holy Spirit is coming upon the human nature of. Mary, because he is forming a new man, a renewal of God's creation, who will produce the fruit that pleases God. Furthermore, it says there, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, again, this is saying to us that what happens to Mary is a result of supernatural power. And you know, by the way, I know that in some cases, the virgin birth has been kind of a test case for whether or not people are going to literally believe that the Bible is true. Do You know what I'm talking about? The virgin birth has been kind of a test case about some people will come to the Bible and say, well, we can't really believe that something like the virgin birth would take place. That just doesn't happen. My friends, isn't that the point? If things like the virgin birth happened all the time, this would be no big deal. But this is a work of the power of the Most High. And if people say, well, yeah, I'm I'm a Christian, I just can't believe in something like the virgin birth, well, they need to reckon with the fact that if you don't believe in the virgin birth, you don't really believe in God. I don't mean to be offensive, but if you believe that there is a God, and God by definition is all powerful or almighty, would it be that hard for him, he who created the heavens and the earth, to create a human being out of the flesh of a mother without the involvement of a man? Of course, God could do that. But there's something more going on here than just telling us that this is a miracle. Because notice this strange language, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, we have a clue for what that means where Luke uses the exact same word later in this gospel in chapter 9. Turn over there for a moment with me to Luke chapter 9 and verse 34 and 35. Luke 9, verses 34 and 35. This, of course, is the account of what we call the Transfiguration. You remember what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus and three of his disciples go up on a mountain... And then, strangely, Jesus is transformed before their eyes. His face begins to shine like the sun. His clothing becomes dazzling white. Jesus is talking with, not Peter and John and James, he's talking with Moses and Elijah. People who have been gone from this earth for centuries. Jesus is being revealed for who he is. And notice, it says in verse 34, As he, Peter, was saying something, he was saying these things, a cloud came and, here's our word, overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. A cloud came. This is the glory cloud. This is the cloud of God's presence. This is the cloud that that descended upon the tabernacle back in the days of Moses. This is the cloud that filled the temple of Solomon so that the priests couldn't even stand to minister. And this cloud comes and overshadows Jesus and his disciples. And the Father speaks from the cloud and says, "'This is my Son.'" In other words, the glory of God has come down to us in Jesus Christ. This is what is being said to us back in the account of the virgin birth in chapter 1. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, Mary. Mary, there's not going to be a visible cloud Nobody's going to see this. This will be a secret miracle. But the glory cloud of God, the very presence of the living God, is coming down over you, overshadowing you, because out of your body, he is going to form a temple. He's going to form a tabernacle, but it will not be built with stones and gold and silver. It will be built with flesh and blood, and the name of the tabernacle where my glory will dwell is nothing less than Jesus Christ. Do you remember how Jesus in John chapter 2 said to people, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they thought he was a lunatic. But John says he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the living temple of God. He is not just the man of God's spirit come to renew the human race and give us a new beginning, but he is the living temple of God. He's the man of God's glory. He is the one in whom the very glory of God has come to us in human form, in a way that we can shake his hand We can embrace him. We can look upon his face. We can know him because he's one of us. And the result of this magnificent supernatural work of God in the virgin birth is given to us in the last part of verse 35 when it says, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. do you sense the momentous significance of those words? Folks, I know that that we look upon our children and we think they're cute and they're innocent in a sense. They haven't lived any life yet, but there's not been a child born in this world that was holy. David says in Psalm 51 that even when he was conceived in his mother's womb, he was conceived in iniquity. He says in Psalm 58:3, surely the wicked go astray from the womb speaking lies. My friends, each one of us in our life history, if, if we were to go back and objectively evaluate our lives, it would be absolutely clear that not one of us entered this world holy. We all entered this world corrupt because of our first father's sin. Because of Adam's sin, every single child who had ever been born prior to this one was not holy, but was sinful, was defiled, and was under God's judgment. The whole human race, we are all sinners. We are all under the judgment of God. But this child, by the miracle of the virgin birth, that horrible, evil chain was broken And for the first time in human history, a child was born into this world that was holy, that was absolutely and utterly pure of all sin, that would never tell a lie, that would never do the slightest act of sinfulness towards one of his brothers or sisters, who would always do what is right. This is an earthquake in human history. This is the arrival of a new man. Someone who is fully human like us, and yet is so very different. Our first father, Adam, was created in a state of purity and holiness. But when he was tempted by the devil, he and his wife in the garden, he did not stand. He disobeyed. But this one... This last Adam, this Jesus who was born of a virgin, he would be tempted by the devil and not in a beautiful lush garden in a barren wilderness after he had fasted for 40 days. And yet this Holy One of God would say no to every single one of Satan's temptations and he would obey where we have disobeyed. This Holy One, this Holy One, when, when he entered into another garden, not the Garden of Eden, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he would contemplate the fact that he was about to go to the cross and not just suffer horrible torment and torture at the hands of men, but he would bear the very wrath of God against sinners because he was dying in the place of his people. This holy man, Jesus, would pray, not my will, but yours be done, Father. He would obey God to the utmost extreme of holiness. He would please his father when it cost him everything. When we would deny God and have denied God with our actions for the smallest of things. Where we failed, he succeeded. And he has brought about a new beginning for the human race so that by living the perfect life and dying the accursed death as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, this Jesus, this holy man, this new beginning by the Holy Spirit for the human race, who is the living temple of God, he has now risen from the dead. And he has poured out his Holy Spirit. And my friends, he is doing for those who belong to him what he himself began. Do you realize that all that God does for his people, he does first in Jesus Christ? We need to be renewed by the Holy Spirit, we need to be born again by his power. But it began with Jesus, who was conceived and born by the Holy Spirit. We, the human race, have become a God-forsaken people. We need to be completely rebuilt to be the temple of the living God. And he is the temple of the living God. From his birth, God dwelt in him. And we need to be holy. We need to be righteous and pure. We need to be set apart from sin, and we need to be set apart for God and his glory. And he is the one who was holy and has been holy. His holiness is tested and proven, and he remains holy today. And when we are joined to him, all these things become true of us. And therefore, my friends, when you look at yourself, when you look at yourself and you see how sin has defiled you, and you see how you, rather than being a person through whom people have met with God, sometimes you have acted in ways that have turned people away from God. You've not been like a temple. And you look at yourself and you see that you've not been motivated by the Spirit of God. You've been motivated by your flesh and your selfishness. You can turn away from yourself and you can look to Jesus Christ and you can see that in Jesus Christ, Here is a man who is all that we need to be, all that we should be, and all that we need him to be for us. Here is a man who, because he was born of the Spirit, he can cause us to be reborn of the Spirit and to grow. Here is a man who, when we feel like God would never accept us, never want to dwell with us, Because we are connected to Jesus by faith, the Father not only accepts us, but he makes us part of his temple. Here is a man who is the very beginning of the new creation of a new humanity. And if you trust in him, he'll make you a new creation and you will become part of the people of the future who will one day live and rule in a new heavens and a new earth with Jesus. And my friends, this not only applies to ourselves, it applies to the way that we view the church. Because when we look at the church of Jesus Christ, and we look at the people involved in it, and we see each other's flaws, we see each other's failings, We see the ways in which the church has not been what it was called to be. We can grow cynical. We can begin to despair. We can feel like church is not a place even to go to meet with God. And yet, my friends, if we will look to Jesus and believe in Jesus, we can also believe that the church of people who are joined to Jesus Christ are the temple of the living God that joined to him, they too are overshadowed by the glory cloud. That joined to Jesus, God looks at them, and because of his righteousness and his blood, they are counted as holy. And because of Jesus, they are actually becoming holy. Now, we have to be realistic about this, don't we? The church is under construction, isn't it? We are a temple under construction. And you know from driving past construction sites that construction sites are often a mess. In fact, sometimes they won't even allow you onto the construction site unless you are wearing a hard hat because it's a dangerous place to be but you also know that oftentimes the construction company or the developer will put up a sign and it'll say something like future home of, and then the name of this place and maybe a picture of it. And you drive past that and you start to get excited. You say, hey, this is coming to town. I'm looking forward to this. This is, you don't drive past and say, what a bunch of jumbled lumber and cinder blocks. You say, Can't wait till they get this place together. This is going to be a really exciting place to go and do things. You anticipate it. You have hope. Well, my friends, that's what we are in Jesus. Just as Christ is the living temple of God, perfect in every way, we are the living temple of God, but we're under construction, aren't we? And let's be honest. The church is a hard hat zone. You can get hurt in church. But I'll tell you something, this is God's construction project, and he's put up a sign. And that sign says, the future home of my glory. And there's a picture up there, too, about what we're going to look like. And you know what that picture is? That picture is Jesus, because we're going to be like the virgin-born Emmanuel. And that, my friends, should give us a different view of the church. The church of Jesus Christ that's united to him, the one who is both God and a holy man, has a glorious future. And yes, we're a construction zone, but we are being built into something beautiful and glorious. So let's have hope And let's view the church the way God views the church in connection to Jesus Christ. Now, you may say, you know, that sounds really, really nice. But I frankly don't see in my own life the power to make anything like that happen. To be honest with you, I don't see myself as somebody who really has the power to become like Jesus. And to be brutally honest, when I look around at other people, I think it would take a miracle to make this group of people into the home of God's glory. Well, my friends, isn't that also the point of the virgin birth? Isn't God saying to us, I have come as the miracle worker. I've come to do the impossible. I mean, listen to what the angel says to Mary in verse 36 and 37. He says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Listen, folks, when it comes to our hope in Jesus Christ for ourselves and for His church, we need to stop counting on the power and strength that we've got. Let's quit assessing our resources and let's start assessing His resources. Because part of what God is saying to us through the virgin birth is when I have come in Jesus Christ, I have come not just to kind of help you do what you should have been doing and you could have done, but you weren't doing it. No. God is saying, I have come to do what you never could have done. I have come to do something in your lives that is impossible with man, but it is possible with God. That's exactly what Jesus says later in this very gospel in Luke chapter 18. He's talking about how hard it is for people to be saved, and he echoes this very same statement that the angel makes. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 26 and 27, the disciples say to him, who can be saved? (laughs) Isn't that an honest question? Lord, how is it possible for anybody to be saved? Frankly, most people in American Christianity think it's easy to get saved. It's easy to be a Christian. It's easy to be a faithful church. Not so. But listen to what Jesus says. Luke 18, 27. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Hear the echo again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? God said to Sarah Genesis 18, 14, or as the angel said to Mary, nothing will be impossible with God. And Jesus says, when it comes to salvation, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Listen, folks, if the least part of our salvation as individuals or a church depended upon us, guess what? Heaven would be empty. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. Do you believe that because of Jesus Christ, God is doing the impossible in your life? Do you believe that no matter how many times you have screwed up and no matter how much you have been surprised at the depth of your own sin and your own corruption, that Jesus is doing the impossible in your life? Do you believe that your brothers and sisters in Christ, as you know each other, as you live together in relationships with each other, as you have had to deal with each other's sins, do you believe that he is doing something impossible in their lives? Because if you believe that, you're believing in Jesus. That's what he came to do. He came to do the impossible and the impossible, my friends, is us. We're the impossible. But he's not given up on us. He's not given up on us. So, how should we respond to this? How should we respond to this? Well, we should respond to this the same way that Mary responded to this word. When she says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Consider what this required of Mary, okay? I mean, we 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 have such rosy views of Christmas. This was a disaster. Think about it. She is going to become pregnant without being married. What is this going to do to her? What how is this going to affect her relationship with their parents? And what about Joseph? Oh, I'm sure he's just going to totally follow along with the program when she says, but an angel told me. I mean, we know what happened from Matthew chapter 1, don't we? A righteous man. Joseph was a righteous man. He, He didn't try and make a big deal out of it. He didn't want to publicly shame her. But he started to go through the legal process to separate from her because a betrothal was legally binding. She could have lost everything. And yet she says, behold, the servant of the Lord, let it be unto me according to your word. She says, God, if this is your plan, if this is the way that you're going to bring Christ into this world, even though it may mean pain, even though it might mean humiliation, profound disappointment, shattering of my dreams, I'm your servant. And you know, as I look at this text, I think what would motivate Mary to say this, and I, you've got to see this, is about Christ. She's, she has heard that Emmanuel is coming. And, and so she is saying, you are worth this. Oh, Son of the Most High, you are worth The trouble it will bring to my life to be obedient and submissive to do your will. Are you willing to do that? Because I tell you the truth, living the Christian life will cost you. It's going to cost you to be a Christian. It's going to cost you to be a faithful member of the church of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be easy, folks. We're going to have to bear with each other, aren't we? We're going to have to forgive each other. We're going to, as Paul says, we will have to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility. Ouch. I've already blown that, haven't I? Humility? with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's going to take work. It might be embarrassing sometimes when you have to apologize to people. But my friends, what Mary is saying to us and what God is saying to us through Mary is that he is worthy. Emmanuel is worthy. And if, if the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, was willing to humble himself and to bind himself to us, to glue himself to us, to weld himself to us so that he would never be separated from our humanity again. Because that's what happened at the incarnation. Jesus is incarnate today. He is stuck with us by his own loving choice. And he will never, he can never separate himself from us again. If he was willing to commit himself like that for the sake of his church, shouldn't we be willing to commit ourselves to his people and to walk together with each other, no matter what it costs? And to say with Mary, Lord, I'm your servant. May it be to me according to your word. Let's pray.